The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 19. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing seven stories for you about fiendish folklore and so much more. All of the tales in tonight's episode were originally planned to be included in Chilling Tales for Dark Nights trilogy of horror anthologies, produced in homage to the iconic Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark book series. However, a decision was recently made to produce longer stories for those books, meaning that many of the excellent short stories are now able to be made available to you here on this very program. I sincerely hope you enjoy these bite-sized tastes of terror from more than half a dozen extremely talented authors. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first four terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Kevin David Anderson. Without further ado, I present to you The Room. A man awoke find himself lying on the floor. Dazed and confused, he was somewhat relieved to see that he was not alone. At least a dozen more people were waking up as well. Women, men, a few children, 
including a little girl, perhaps seven. She must have woken before everyone else, because she was already standing. The man got to his feet and helped others to theirs. Thank you, sir, an elderly woman said with a toothless smile, while holding her hand, the natural instinct to introduce oneself, rose in him, but as he opened his mouth to speak, he realized he did not know who he was. Listening to the shatter around him, it became clear that no one knew their own name. That by itself was unnerving, but what sent a chill up the man's spine was realizing that they were all in a square room, pale white walls not much bigger than an office lobby or waiting room, and the room seemed to have no windows and no doors. Confusion moved like an infection from face to face as the realization that they were all sealed in and spread around the room. Some started looking for a way out, exploring the walls and the corners. The youngsters began to cry, and a few others tried to take charge, giving orders. One looked to be a priest. No one really listened. Then suddenly, the room was plunged into darkness, pitch black cold. There was a moment of deafening quiet. No one moved. The silence was shattered by a bone-chilling scream. The lights came on with a blinding suddenness. Looking around, the man noticed that the elderly woman he had helped was gone, and in her place, blood pooled in thick circles. Terror moved through the room like an encumbered wind. People began to shout and claw at the walls. A moment later, the lights went out again. A scream, deep, shrill, boomed in the darkness. The light snapped back, bright and unforgiving. The man looked to his right, where a young boy had stood moments ago. Now there was only blood. Several people began to sob. People moved to the walls, looking for some kind of protection from the thing in the darkness. A moment later, the light was gone. A high-pitched scream echoed in the blackness. When the lights returned, a woman who had been pressed up against the wall, was gone. The blood on the floor showed a partial outline of where her bare foot had been. The man did his best to control his fear, difficult to do, in a room filled with dread. But one other figure was as calm as he wanted to be. The little girl he had noticed earlier stood in the middle of the room. No panic, no fear. She didn't seem interested in finding a way out. She was different in another way as well. Her skin was olive-colored. Mediterranean, if you had to guess. A stark contrast to everyone else in the room, who were all black. Everyone but him. He looked at his hands, pale, sweat-matting the blonde hair on his arms. When he looked back over at the girl, she greeted him with an unnerving smile. She stepped close to a trembling boy not much older than her. The lights went out. The child screamed. When the lights returned, he was gone. Shuddering, the man met the little girl's gaze. Her smile persisted, joyful and unafraid. She stepped toward a woman, huddled in a corner. The lights vanished, and when they returned, the corner was empty. 
It's her. A burly woman from the other side of the room shouted, an accusing finger thrust toward the little girl. She is doing this. I saw her go to those that had disappeared right before they vanished. The woman lunged at the girl. The girl did not move or attempt to defend herself. The woman grabbed her by the throat. Why are you doing this? Who are you? The little girl smiled even as she choked. The man grabbed the woman by the shoulder and wrenched her from the little girl. He pulled harder than he'd intended, and the large woman tumbled to the floor. He felt horrible and reached out his hand, hoping she would take it. But before she could, the lights were gone. There was a blood-curdling scream. When he could see again, the man found himself holding out his hand to a puddle of blood. The woman was gone. Besides him and the little girl, six others remained in the crimson-spotted room. Elderly, young, middle-aged. There was no age discrimination in this room, no immunity. One after the other, the olive-skinned girl stepped towards them. The lights went out. There was a cry of pain. And then they were gone. When only the man remained, he backed away from the little girl, pressing himself against the wall. The girl smiled and took a measured step his way. Please don't, he said. She took another step. You don't have to do this. She took a final step and stood at his feet. She smiled. Then the lights were gone. He screamed. The man sat up so fast he nearly fell from his cot. Sweat covered his brow and he felt weak, dizzy, ready to pass out. As he slumped back down into the soiled sheets, the memory of where he was and who he was flooded back. Dr. Folsom came a voice from his right. A woman wearing a surgical mask and a CDC-issued faded blue safe suit, minus the headgear, uh, stepped over to his cot. She knelt down on one knee. Her mask, discolored by moisture, covered most of her face, but he recognized her dark brown eyes and thick Liberian accent. Jernora was her name, a volunteer from Sierra Leone. You're still with us. He tried to speak, but his throat was unimaginably dry and felt as if he'd swallowed razors. He glanced around the tent and at the other cots. There were twenty or more, each occupied with death, a sheet drawn over the bodies. We moved you to this quarantine tent four days ago. I'm sorry I didn't come by. I was told everyone in here was dead. He remembered being moved here. He remembered thinking that it was a death sentence. And judging by his current company, he wasn't wrong. How are you feeling? How is he feeling? Over the past few weeks, he'd watched the epidemic move like wildfire from village to village. He watched helplessly as dying mothers held their dead children. Medical school had given him the knowledge of how Ebola killed, but seeing it for himself told him just how inadequate words in a textbook are. How do you describe how it feels when your organs liquefy? How am I feeling? He felt like going back in time and listening to his father when he begged him not to come to West Africa. 
let others risk their lives, he had pleaded. He wished he'd stayed home and married Carrie, bought that overpriced house in Cardiff, and raised a family. How was he feeling? He felt a lot of things, none of which mattered anymore. He tried to move his hand to gesture to the room. Janora seemed to understand what he meant. We haven't moved the bodies, I know. She shook her head, eyes full of water. There was simply no one to do it. Everyone has been focused on the living. There's no time for the dead. Folsom nodded, or at least thought he did. He'd seen death move through a square tent like this. Inside its pale canvas walls, it touched each patient one after the other, systematically, as if there was an order to it. A schedule, even. Showing no prejudice or favoritism, square tent was not unlike, and then he remembered. The deathbed hallucination. The room. The dying. The girl. Janora checked his vitals. Through her gloves, he could feel her shaking. Fatigue or exhaustion might have caused the trembling, but Folsom didn't think that was it. He wanted to tell her it was okay, but something caught his attention in the back of the tent. Movement. Steady movement. Janora must have seen something in his face. Dr. Folsom, are you all right? Her hand moved to his chest. He summoned his strength, and with quivering hands, he tried to push her away. Go, he said. What is it? Folsom froze as a tiny figure moved in his direction. It walked past the dead with purpose. He tried again, put the palm of his hands on Janora's shoulders and pushed. Leave, now. Janora slowly got to her feet. I'll let you rest. I'll check you later. He shook his head, locking his gaze on the girl with the olive skin. Never return to this tent. She stood silently, looking down, and Folsom met her gaze, seeing that look in her eye, the one that all the volunteers got when gazing down at someone's final moments, the moment of complete irrational delusion, the delusion before dying. Folsom had had that look a hundred times in the last few weeks, and each time he wondered what they must be going through, what images are conjured up in those final moments. Go home, Janor, Folsom said. Go home to those kids of yours, and don't look back. He watched as she turned and headed for the exit. When she left, she wiped her eyes, but she did as she had asked. And she did not look back. A wave of relief came over him, and he looked over at the little girl standing next to his cot. In his light, she looked a little different than she had in the room of the terrified and dying. Had the ebony wings protruding from her back always been there, he wondered. The black feathers fluttered as she smiled. She stepped closer. His mouth was dry and painful. But he managed to say, I think I'm ready. She brought a hand over his chest, leaned down and said, I know. And then the light was gone.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Room by author Kevin David Anderson, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got a second terrifying tale for you. This one from author H.K. Reyes. Without further ado, I present to you, Tap Dance. From the moment she learned to walk, little Myrtle dreamed of becoming a tap dancer. She would totter through the house, her chubby feet bare and slapping her rhythmically on the hardwood, her squeaky voice calling out, tatter, 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 like tap shoes on a stage. When her second-grade teacher presented her with an oversized pair of old black taps, Myrtle's eyes, her big eyes had sparkled, and her pink lips had rounded into an awestruck, Ooh! Her mother, Esme, hated the tapping. She was prone to headaches, and the constant tap, tap a tap, ringing throughout the house was like a long, dull nail hammering into the center of her forehead, every tap driving her deeper. Please, sweetie, she would beg, not so loud. Mama's head hurts so much. But Myrtle would shake her head. If I can't tap, I'll die, she said. And the house would resound with the tap, 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 tap. Myrtle tapped down the stairs to breakfast. She tapped up the sidewalk to school. She tapped in the house in grocery store aisles, under the table at dinner. She tapped until her shoes were half rotted and her pink toes wriggled from holes in the leather. Esme took fistfuls of pills to drown the pain in her head, plugged her ears, and covered her face with pillows at night. Please, Myrtle, just an hour's silence, just a moment's. No, I want to dance forever. Nothing could stop it. The endless, inescapable tap-tap-a-tap, tap-tap-a-tap, each tap driving the nail of pain deeper into Esme's skull, each tap fueling a desperate, consuming desire for silence. One cold winter's day, Esme lay in bed, her curtains drawn, cold wet rag draped over her forehead. This throbbing pain had just begun to subside and she was drifting into sleep. Then, a bang! 
downstairs door flew open, followed by tap, tap, a tap, 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 a tap. Esme's bloodshot eyes snapped open. The pain erupted anew like glass marbles, exploding inside her brain. A wave of despair crashed over her, but there was something else, something new burning inside her. The nail, driving deeper into her skull for three long years, had hit something. She flew down the stairs and yelled in a terrible, trembling voice, There'll be no more tapping in this house! Myrtle, her yellow backpack, slung over his shoulder, stood gaping wide-eyed at this crazed woman with wild hair, smeared lipstick, and a furious red eyes. Mommy, she whispered. No more, Esme shouted. You hear me? No more. She dashed toward her. Myrtle screamed and turned to run. Esme caught her ankles and yanked them back, slamming little Myrtle onto the floor. Esme clawed at the tap shoes, pulling at the cracked leather, her fingernails slashing at Myrtle's calves. Mommy, stop, Myrtle cried. Mommy, please. No more, Esme shouted as she tore the tap shoes from Myrtle's feet. She reached back with a savage cry and threw them into the fireplace. No! Myrtle dove to save her beloved shoes, but the fire was too hot and she could only watch as they burned. Esme laughed, a wild, cackling laugh, like the fire itself. No more! She yelled gleefully. No more tapping! No more! Myrtle stood perfectly still, watching the liver shrivel and crack in the flames. Suddenly she threw her head back and howled, a cry of despair and agony so awful that it silenced her mother. Vicious expression on Esme's face vanished. She blinked, as if waking from a dream. I, I, she stammered. She gasped at the fire as though seeing it for the first time. Did I just, how could I? Myrtle bolted out of the house sobbing. Esme chased after her. Sweetie, wait. Myrtle ran barefoot across a snow-covered front yard her cries echoing through the neighborhood. She ran toward the street, her arms flailing, and her eyes blinded with tears. She never saw the truck. Murder! Esme cried. There's a screech of tires. A red mist sprayed into the air, and a sickening, wet snap rang out like a tree branch breaking under the weight of snow. Esme's run slowed to an unsteady walk. Numb, with a dull ringing in her ears, she approached the spot where the bright red tire track cut a line through the snow. She couldn't hear the people who got out of the car, one yelling uncontrollably, the other begging for an ambulance on the phone. The only thing she could hear was the gurgling sound coming from her daughter's top half, thrown far from where her legs had landed, a bloody foam oozing from her mouth, pink bubbles 
popping on her lips and sounding almost like taps. Esme fell to her knees and screamed. Esme sat beside the grave, clutching and releasing the soft black earth in her hand. Fat, clumpy snowflakes were beginning to fall. She watched them land and melt in the back of her hand, watched them collect on the graveside. The only sound was the gentle crunch of the soil in her fingers as she squeezed and released, squeezed and released, rhythmically like a heartbeat. Soon the snowfall would cover the soil, she thought, erasing it from the landscape in a blanket of white. Grass would grow over it in the spring. In a thousand years, even the gravestone would be reduced to a lump of shapeless rock. Nothing would remain. Nothing, she knew, but the pain she felt, the infinite agony. She knew even time itself would never erase such a thing, that when her body died, she would simply be formless, thoughtless pain for all eternity. She lay down on top of the grave, closed her eyes, and let the snow fall on them both. She pictured Myrtle beneath the ground, wearing the pretty yellow dress that she wore to her dance recitals. She pictured her dancing on stage, but she couldn't keep her whole in her mind. The little girl kept coming apart in two pieces, torso and legs. The legs danced, while the top half glared at her in anguish and rage. Esme laid on her side in the winter stillness. Her body was gripped by a suffocating pain that made her want to curl into herself and vanish, pain that reached into every part of herself. Every part but her head. In the silence, her head was tranquil and clear. The pounding headaches had ceased, and in their place, there was now a secret, shameful relief. She ran her fingers over the grave, tracing lines in the fluffy snow. Perhaps, she thought, she could at least be grateful for this one small silver lining, this one tiny piece of solace in her grief. Myrtle would understand, wouldn't she? She closed her eyes and let the slightest smile come to her lips. Suddenly, she sat up. She touched something. What was it? She brushed snow away from the ground and gasped. There, at the base of the gravestone, were two shiny yellow tap shoes. Esme lay in bed, her face smeared with hot, sticky tears. Her breath was short and shallow. Her tremor in hands clutched fistfuls of blanket under her chin. I'm sorry, she whispered over and over. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Her head shot up. She held her breath. Had she heard something? Blood pounded in her ears as she strained to listen. After a long minute, she exhaled and fell back onto the bed. She sat bolt upright. No, it wasn't just imagination. She could hear a faint tap, tap, a tap 
tap, tap and tap, coming from outside. She cast off the blanket and rushed downstairs. She threw open the front door and ran out into the yard, bare feet crunching in the snow. Myrna, she called. Sweetie, is that you? She listened, but she heard only her own quivering breath and the sniffles in her nose. She wrapped her arms around herself, shivering in her underwear as the snow fell onto her shoulders. She walked back into the house and closed the door behind her. She fell onto her hands and knees in front of the fireplace. Heavy sobs racked her body. Tap, tap, tap. The sound rang out like gunfire. Esme gasped. Mara. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. The sound was sharp and violent, seeming to come from within the walls themselves. It pounded like a war drum, rattling the whole house, knocking pictures from the mantel above the fireplace. Esme clutched her head in her hands. The world was tilting, spinning around her. Darkness enveloped her in cold, airless folds. She could feel herself sliding away into madness. Tap, tap, tap. I'm sorry, she sobbed. I'm so sorry. The pain, my head, I couldn't bear it. It was like a nail in my brain, the tapping, always the tapping, the unending tapping. I thought if I could stop the tapping just for a moment, I could think. She pounded her fists against her head and wailed. Oh, but I would give anything, anything to hear it again. The sound ceased. Esme doubled over, clutching her gut as she sobbed in the darkness. She swallowed her sobs and listened. She could hear something, a new sound. Tap, tap, a tap, scrape. Tap, tap, a tap, scrape. This was not some mad hallucination. This was the sound of tap shoes in this very room and something scraping against the hardwood. Esme wiped tears from her eyes. She peered into the darkness, her vision still blurry. She saw her. Little Myrtle sitting on the floor, a dim square moonlight falling on the shoulders of her yellow dress. Esme could hardly breathe. My baby, she whispered, my Myrtle. Esme crawled toward her, holding her arms out, a tight, wincing smile on her face. She stopped. Myrtle's skin was blotchy and gray, with dark purple veins running up and down her arms. Her waist was a crimson tangle, a bloody flesh, legless with putrid black intestines, and a glistening white spinal column hanging down. She stood on her hands, on which... She wore the yellow tap shoes. Esme, frozen, could only watch as the child dragged herself toward her. Tap, tap, a tap, scrape. Her spine dragging along the floor beneath her. Myrtle leaned her rotten face close to her mother's, her rancid eyeballs weeping black slime. We're going to go dancing, Mommy. She said, 
forever. Days later, the police were called to investigate a smell coming from the house. They found Esme dead in the front room. Her feet had been mangled and broken to fit into a pair of child-sized tap shoes, and her hair had been burned off in the fireplace. But the official cause of death had been the dozens of long, dull nails hammered into her skull. According to investigators, the uniform placement of the nails indicated that they were not driven in haphazardly. Rather, they were hammered in slowly, carefully, one tap at a time. I hope you enjoyed Tap Dance by author H.K. Reyes, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got a third taste of frightening fiction for you, in the form of a tale from author Nick Boddock. Without further ado, I present to you the Aberdeen Parade. The road is a light brown path of dirt, that stretches up and down the shallow hills, running straight from end to end before becoming serpentine at its eastern end, where it meets the main highway. Blades of grass struggle to break through, but soon thereafter become dead and scattered. That road is a desolate one, surrounded by open fields and the occasional tree, upon which no leaves grow and no colors brighten the day. That road hasn't been traversed in many a year, sitting sullen and undisturbed where it was once the main avenue, bustling and lively as the main strip through the town market. The people of the once surrounding town would erect tents along the energetic thoroughfare to sell and trade their goods. Day in and day out, the market strip would attract all of the townspeople and folk from surrounding communities. It was this way for years. Then one morning, as all the store owners arrived to open their businesses, a sound was heard in the distance. A number of sounds, trombones, drums, trumpets, flutes, and cheers. It was a fleeting sound, carried by the wind, there one moment and gone the next. That was the day that Howard Aberdeen came to town. Howard Aberdeen was a small old man with a hunched back, teary eyes, and bulbous nose. He wore layered cloaks and walked with a limp, aided by a twisted cane carved from the branch of a tree. With the assistance of three silent women he referred to as his thankful sisters, Howard Aberdeen built a display on the small section of the side of the road that he leased. On the crudely constructed wooden shelves sat a myriad of objects, each one stranger than the last, painted stones and glass, figures and shapes made of sticks held together by black string, various liquids of all colors, purported to be for any number of uses. Perhaps the oddest item in Howard Aberdeen's possession 
was one that most decidedly was not for sale. A small collection of papers, the contents of which only he and his three mute sisters knew the details. Every morning before the townspeople came to market, Howard would take his sisters to the top of the hill behind the store and read aloud from the pages, stopping whenever anyone came close enough to hear. Every morning, people would examine his goods. Some would consider buying them, but few ever did. The ones that did purchase what Howard Aberdeen sold only did so for decoration, ignoring their seller's claims that with them bright light or deep darkness could be achieved. It was a bright Tuesday afternoon, the market full of people, when a tall girl of ten years inexplicably dropped to the ground outside of Howard Aberdeen's store. The townspeople rushed to the girl's aid, but no one could ascertain what had happened to her, nor how to remedy it. Just then, old Howard Aberdeen hobbled his way through the crowd, accompanied by his three silent sisters, and each of the four placed a stone next to the girl, at her head, her feet, and at both elbows. Howard Aberdeen himself placed a drop of a pink liquid on his index finger and proceeded to draw a shape on the girl's forehead. Come back, he muttered in a voice as much silk as it was gravel. And the girl did just that. Her eyes opened, and she sat up, a sweet smile across her lips. The townspeople rejoiced, confused but grateful. Showing the most gratitude was the girl's father, who also happened to be the town's mayor. After an abundance of thanks, the mayor declared that day Aberdeen Day and asked what he could do for the aged vendor and his sisters. The old man gave it a quick thought and decided that a celebration in his name would suffice. The mayor suggested a parade which pleased Howard Aberdeen. For the next several years, the Aberdeen Parade was a joyous occasion, with people from neighboring towns joining the festivities. People began to support Howard Aberdeen's business more regularly, though continuing to use his products for mere decorations, despite the power they'd seen them capable of firsthand. But the novelty wore off, and half a decade after Howard Aberdeen and his silent sisters had saved the mayor's daughter, they were all but back to where they had begun, save for the young woman they'd saved, coming around every day to express her gratitude. That's when the accident started happening. The first was the man that owned the shop to the left of Howard Aberdeen's. While sleeping in his favorite chair, he suddenly burst into flames. The blaze quickly spread to the rest of his small home, killing his wife and two small children. Only days later, the siblings who owned the shop to the right of Howard Aberdeen's were taking a late-night walk when a large chunk of rock broke off from the hill above them, tumbling down and killing them both. At the scenes of both deaths, products sold at Howard Aberdeen's store was seen. The townspeople quickly realized that the old man and his sisters were connected to the deaths, and a mob formed outside the Aberdeen home. Old, decrepit Howard Aberdeen calmly stepped outside to address the accusations. 
"'Aye!' he exclaimed proudly. "'Twas I, myself and my three lovely companions. "'I saved one of your own, "'despite remaining on the outside of the town folk, "'much to my distaste. "'Do you fear me? "'Do you pity me? "'I did what I could to be a part of your community, "'but you sniggered at what we have to offer. "'Sure,' Some of you have purchased our wares, but for what? You have disregarded the bright lights and deep darkness you could have achieved. I've offered you great power, and you have chuckled behind our backs. I even showed you the power we wield. You were appreciative, yes, for but a moment. Time crept along, and Mr. Mayor, you seem to forget that every year was to have an Aberdeen Day. Is that what your daughter's life was worth? Two celebrations? No, no, hardly. Young lady, are you about the crowd? Despite the objections from the townspeople, the mayor's daughter cautiously approached Howard Aberdeen. You needn't be afraid, my dear. I saved you once before. Why should I negate that now, when you've been the kindest of all those here today? I wish to save you once again. Come now, dear. The daughter gave Howard Aberdeen a curious look, but obliged him. Once she was within an arm's reach of the old man, he placed a drop of a black liquid on his index finger. He then drew a circle on her forehead and politely dismissed her, not telling her what it was he'd just done. The mayor of the town exclaimed, shouting threats that were echoed by the rest of the constituents. Is that what you presume to do to me? I think you'll find it most difficult. I would like to remind you, a parade a year would have saved you all. Howard Aberdeen bowed his head. The townspeople began screaming as their flesh melted from their bones. Their teeth turned to liquid, their eyes to tears, in their own right, their tongues to puddles. They sizzled and they cracked, they popped and they dripped, and before long, the puddles of people seemed to evaporate into thin air, clothing and all. Only the mayor's daughter was left, crying in the fetal position. Each of Howard Aberdeen's three sisters bent down and picked up the three small stones they'd placed discreetly around the crowd of angry townsfolk. The old man stepped slowly to the girl. I told you I'd saved you again, my dear. I do believe it's time to move on to another town now. Perhaps one is more appreciative than this one, or the previous one, or the one before that. Will you join me? The mayor's daughter looked up with tears streaming down her face and nodded her head. Thank you, she muttered. Always grateful, you are. And will you always be so? Howard Aberdeen asked her. The girl nodded her head. And I believe you, I truly do. But it is a chance I mustn't take. Two of the silent sisters grabbed the mayor's daughter and held her in place while the third removed her tongue. The girl screamed out in pain and flailed about wildly, 
but a drop of a green liquid in her mouth soothed away the pain. The girl was escorted into Howard Aberdeen's home, where upon the table a number of different liquids and powders sat in readiness. All of the items were placed inside a stone bowl, followed by the daughter's tongue. Howard Aberdeen read from the pages he always kept close, and the contents of the bowl burst into a flame of a thousand colors, burning for a moment before extinguishing itself, leaving the bowl clean and empty. The group of five walked outside, where the mayor's daughter couldn't believe her eyes. A line of people stretched back for as far as she could see, each holding an instrument. Some were dressed in clothing from biblical times, others in ancestral African garb, yet others in full suits of medieval armor. Her own father, now ghastly pale, almost translucent, stood with a trombone, eyes forward. And on and on we go, my loves, Howard Aberdeen said, and the parade marched on down the road, all led by old Howard Aberdeen and his four silent sisters. They faded into thin air as they moved, but the sound of lively music continued to permeate the air. No one has seen the Aberdeen parade since, but Howard Aberdeen always wants his celebration. It's just a matter of finding the best musicians. And Howard Aberdeen is surely due for another parade. I hope you enjoyed the Aberdeen Parade by author Nick Buttock, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got a fourth fear-inducing tale for you, this one from author William Dolphin. Without further ado, I present to you Body Parts. An old man lived alone in a house by the ocean. Every morning, as the sun rose, he walked down the forest path to the beach and enjoyed the salty air coming off the water. Every evening, he returned to the shore to watch the sunset reflect off the water. He was a widower with a grown son who lived in town, but he never felt sad or lonely, for the ocean was his companion. One morning, as he walked along the shoreline, the old man noticed something half-buried in seaweed and foam. Curious, he picked the object up and rinsed it off in the water. To his surprise, it was a human foot, cleanly severed above the ankle. He hurried back home with the appendage to telephone the authorities, but once he got there, found that he couldn't bring himself to place the call. Something about the foot mesmerized him. It was small and delicate, and the skin was pale like marble, with red nail polish on the toes. The old man wondered who it belonged to. That night, the widower heard a knock at the door. Standing under the moth-covered light of the front porch was a woman in a gray cloak, her face concealed by the hood. Can I help you? The old man asked. The visitor's voice was gentle and soft. 
I'm looking for somebody. Who are you looking for? He asked. Before she answered, the old man awoke to find himself in bed and realized that the encounter was just a dream. He had never had such a vivid dream before. It felt so real that it puzzled him, and he struggled to get back to sleep. The following morning, the widower took the path down to the shore for his morning constitutional, only to find that another body part had washed up. It was an arm, long and slender, neatly severed at both shoulder and wrist. Without thinking, the old man gathered up the limb, rinsed it off in the cold water, then scuttled back up the forest path to his house before anyone else came by. He placed it beside the foot, suspecting that both parts came from the same person. I wonder if more will show up, he thought. That night, he had the same dream of the woman in gray. Once again, she came to the door, looking for somebody, and when he asked who, he immediately woke up, feeling disoriented and confused. As before, he found it difficult to go back to sleep. The desire to know her name and who she was looking for began to eat at his sanity. Every day after that, another piece washed up on shore. A leg, its pale flesh glistening in the salty water, then a hand, small and delicate. Another arm, another foot. The pieces kept washing up with the tide, cold and dead and beautiful. And every night he dreamed the same dream. Each time the woman in gray would knock at his door, he would answer, and she would tell them that she was looking for someone. Each time, the dream ended immediately after, denying him the opportunity to see her face. It gnawed at him, and he'd spend the rest of the night tossing and turning, trying to return to the dream, but never able to. He knew that somehow the dreams and the body parts were linked, and he started to suspect the dreams were in fact premonitions. She must have a friend who was looking for her, he thought. Then a morning came where the old man awoke to realize he'd overslept. The sun was already high overhead, and the day had progressed without him. Panicked, the widower tossed on a coat and a pair of slippers to hurry down to the shore. Over the course of the past week, he had managed to piece together almost an entire human body. The only thing missing was the head, which he had highly anticipated washing up that very day. But there was nothing there when he got to the ocean. No head, perfectly severed at the neck, long tresses of dark hair covering its cold, dead face, like he imagined. The beach was bare, save the footprints of other walkers, and the old man became horrified at the thought that someone else may have found the head before him. In his mind, twisted by days of collecting the pieces of the dismembered corpse, he suspected everyone he knew. Curse my neighbors! He hissed to himself. One of them must have it. He spent the rest of the day pacing back and forth down the beach, tearing at his hair, trying to decide what to do. When lunchtime came, he remained by the water, unable to even think of eating. When the evening set in, 
He watched the sun set on the horizon across the water, but it did not give him joy. It wasn't until the cold of night began to descend on him that he returned home, miserable and suddenly feeling lonelier than he had in many years. I can't do this anymore, he thought. I need to be rid of these body parts. He picked up the phone and dialed his son, who lived in town, ready to finally let someone in on what he had found. Just as his son picked up on the other end of the line, there came a rap at the door. Instead of speaking, the old man hung up and walked in a trance to answer the knock. There stood the woman from his dreams. Her face was still concealed by the hood of a large gray cloak she wore. She didn't move or speak a word. It was the moment he had been waiting for over a week for, and yet now that it was before him, the old man felt overwhelmed with fear. He hesitated, his mind a flurry of questions. Was he dreaming? Would he wake up and find that the entire day had been in his head? Was she really here? Who was she? Who are you? He asked her. I'm looking for somebody. She repeated, following the script of his dream. And suddenly he knew, as if lightning had struck him. She wasn't just looking for somebody. She was looking for somebody. Slowly he looked down at her feet but saw none. His eyes ran back up from her form and realized there was no form under the gray cloak she wore. There was nothing at all. Behind him, the phone began to ring, but he was too stricken with fear to move from the door. Terror lumped in his throat as he reached out to throw back her hood and finally see the long, dark tresses hanging down across her cold, dead eyes. The next morning, the old man's son came calling. His father had rung him on the phone, but hung up before they could chat. It worried him that when he called back, his father did not pick up. The front door lay unlocked and wide open, the house empty. The young man searched high and low, but found no sign of his father. Maybe he had gone for a walk down by the ocean like he does often, the son thought. He followed the forest path down to the beach. His father was not to be found. The only other person there was a quiet young woman sitting in the sand looking out at the waves. She wore a long gray cloak that covered her completely. Excuse me, the son said. I'm looking for somebody. Who are you looking for? The woman asked. Her voice was gentle. She idly wiggled her toes, getting sand all over her red nail polish. My father, the son replied. He often likes to take a walk down here in the morning. I haven't seen anyone but you. Something about her filled the young man with unease. All right. Well, thank you. As he headed back toward the forest path, the young woman called to him. I'm sure he'll turn up sooner or later. People always do. The young man returned to his father's house to wait. He never saw the woman in the gray cloak again, but she was right. Within a week, his father was found. First, his foot washed up on shore. 
I hope you enjoyed Body Parts by William Dolphin, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Don't forget, all of the tales featured in tonight's program were originally penned as part of a Chilling Tales for Dark Nights planned trilogy of horror anthologies, in homage to the iconic book series Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Though tonight's tales will no longer appear in that series, many new, longer-length tales will, and the books are being prepared as we speak. Stay tuned to Chilling Tales on Facebook, Twitter, and their YouTube channel for more updates as the books are finalized, and for details on where you can pick up a copy of these fully illustrated collections once they're released. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, Please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky. Get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>
got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed. I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Ha 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 ha.